Guys, quickly before getting into the message, um, we've been given much. You know, we're promised, Jesus promised us persecution and hardship as those who bear his name. We get very little of that in the States, but that's not true of others elsewhere. You have an insert in your bulletin uh, that tells you all kinds of things you can do related to the persecuted church, and I would sure invite you to do that, whether it's prayer. Uh, the church does support Voice of the Martyrs monthly. That's a ministry that works with Christians being persecuted all over the world. But you and I at our homes, we can pray. Sometimes there are letters you can write. There are practical things we can do for real people just like us. So think about that. Also, Kathy and I had a special date the other night. We took two boxes. We took these boxes in with us to the dollar store. And then we went up and down the aisles, and we chose 10 to 14-year-old boys. And so this is our box. And so... I'm trying to lead by example. I'm encouraging you all, make a date, do whatever it takes. Uh, but fill one or two of these up for each family, if you would. And it makes a difference. And the kids are not only getting the stuff that they get excited about, but of course they're getting the gospel message too. So this is a big deal for us. It's easy for us to do, like praying for the persecuted church. So be thinking about that. We'd love to fill this area up. Uh, on the message this morning, this is not a feel-good message, guys. Uh, we're talking about God's judgment. We're talking about hell this morning. This is not something that we talk a lot about in church. And honestly, you know, on one hand, when you read scriptures and you put yourself in the place of judgment, it brings a marvelous clarity and a reality to God's goodness to us and our sinfulness. And so my hope from our time this morning is that we get a clearer sense of what the perfection of God's righteous judgment towards us would be apart from Christ, without God and without hope. And then the flip side of that becomes the overflowing grace and goodness and love of God to us in Christ when we realize what he saved us from. But I'm sure that to some significant degree for us, the shallowness of our faith is often tied to the shallowness of our apprehension of how sinful we really are were and how great God's grace and love in Christ really was and is and so if we can get a little bit clearer sense what does the judgment the perfect justice of God look like it opens our eyes more fully to who we were lost without Christ and how great God's love and grace in Christ to us is so Mark mentioned Tuesday the circus ends, sort of, right? The circus never ends fully, but the circus has been in town for a couple of years. It ends, at least as far as the voting goes, Tuesday. So that'll be a good thing. You know, it's, it's uh, been a political process this last couple of years or so. Crazy with strife and accusation, really discouraging in some ways, right? You know, Kansas has, we have our share of contention too, though. And one of those areas is, do we retain judges? This is one of the questions on your ballot if you haven't already voted. It's do you retain judges? Uh, district, appellate, and Supreme Court. And if you're aware of this, on the Supreme Court level here in the, in the state of Kansas, one of the reasons there's a move to disenfranchise at least four, I think, of the justices on our Supreme Court, there's a number of things, but one of the key things is this. These justices have overturned the death sentence on at least three occasions of particularly 
heinous, unspeakable murders. They've overturned that. And if you look at public opinion in the last several decades, actually public opinion has tended to swing away from seeing the death penalty as a valid element of justice. And, and part of this you can understand, and maybe you're totally sympathetic anyway, but part of this, when they do studies, it looks like justice is uneven in the way it's dispensed in capital crimes. That is, your skin color, your social or economic status may help determine whether you get the death sentence or not. And so you say, well, if it's not just, then that simply is not a good thing. But let me ask you this. Just assume there's a case in which we know that this person premeditatively murdered another person. There's witnesses. We, all the facts are there. They're all plain. They're laid out before us. Is the death penalty, is that just? Is it right? Is it appropriate that the murderer gives up his own life because he took the life of someone else? And remember, when we're talking about the death sentence, we're not talking about rehabilitating someone, are we? You know, often the, this, the part of the thought of sentencing is that we're hoping people come out better than they went in, right? And statistically, that doesn't happen very often. But in this case, there's no rehabilitation even thought of. It's not in the equation. You're saying this is simple punishment. It's, it's simple justice. You could even say it's vengeance. But it has nothing to do with rehabilitating someone. Is that okay? Is that appropriate? Is it just? Is it right? Take that a step further, guys. Is the death penalty in our society, is that okay? And then, and then ratchet that concept up. Is an eternal death sentence, is that okay? In the eyes of a holy, righteous God, is an eternal death penalty, is that okay? And, and we call that hell, don't we? Or the lake of fire, or the second death. Would hell, would this place of banishment forever from the God of life, would that be just? You know, if you talk to people just on the street, you can go online, uh, Vimeo and, and YouTube, you can watch interviews along this line, Christian DVDs also. The man on the street interviews, you know, do you believe in God? Do you believe in heaven and hell? And, and most people will say they really don't believe in hell. But if you push them, and if you say something like, this is the easy target. What about Adolf Hitler? Do you think Adolf and the people he murdered are singing happily together side by side in the courts of glory? Well, maybe not. So World War II under Hitler, around 25 million deaths. Not just 6 million Jews, but gypsies and the mentally and physically infirm. And of course, the murder of lots of civilians and... and ten, um, I think it's 10 or 12 million died after the warfare from famine and from disease. So Adolf, so we say, well, you know, if there's a hell, Adolf is probably your man. He's probably there. Okay, the, kind of the worst guy we can think of. But then if you say, well, how many did Hitler personally, in fact, kill? Because it wasn't him doing all that, was it? So what about the soldiers who ran the death camps? Or what about the soldiers who murdered unarmed soldiers and citizens throughout Europe? Poland was one of the worst places of this. Millions of Polish people murdered by the German army. Might they belong there too? Maybe they would 
2. So if hell is real, how bad do you have to be to get there? How bad does your sin and mine have to be to get there? Maybe in our minds, if we're sitting here this morning, is there anyone that you think of that it's so bad that you know, either personally or by reputation, you think they are so bad? They belong in hell. And then last, is it possible? Is it possible? Just entertain the notion. Is it possible that anyone in this room deserves hell? Because we're good people. And we're in church on Sunday morning. Surely no one here would deserve such a punishment. No rehabilitation. Just vengeance. Just wrath. Just justice. Could that be true for any of us here this morning? With that happy introduction, we're in our series Foundations, and we're looking at at key biblical doctrines, right? And we're following up on Jesus' words in Matthew 7, when He said the, the wise person who's building his house on the rock is taking in the truth of God's Word, and he's acting on it. And his life is adequate for the storms that life is going to throw his way, both in time and also in eternity. The foolish person either doesn't know what God has said, doesn't bother to find out, or hears what God says but doesn't do it. His life is built on sand. And when the storms of life come, or eternity, his house, his life is going to fall apart. And we're bringing this morning that whole concept to this idea of judgment, to God's judgment. If you remember earlier in this series, we talked about God, and we talked about just on the very front end of things, how foolish it would be to live life as if we're not in the fishbowl that God made. And that the appropriate thing is to acknowledge that there's a God and He has made Himself known to us through Jesus. This morning, we're looking at sin. And this is a topic we've already looked at, everybody's sins. But this morning, we're looking at sin and judgment. And what we find is this. Sin not only produces death in one form or another. Sin always brings death. But there's a divine response to sin as well. Because God is holy and because sin is an offense to His own nature, God must punish sin. He must pass righteous judgment. This cannot be otherwise. The justice, the judgment of God. When we're talking about these words, and sometimes we use these interchangeably, just, right, justice, righteousness, In English, we're translating either one word group out of Hebrew or one word group out of Greek, but we're using a couple different words to translate those two word groups. And basically, we mean this. A justice in judgment is what is right. It's correct. Wayne Grudem defines it this way, related to God in His justice, His judgment, His righteousness. He says, God always acts in accordance with what is right, and is Himself the final standard of what is right. So that when God judges, He always does so perfectly, justly, righteously. We're going to look at this from a few different vantage points in a bit of a hurry just because we've got a lot going on this morning. Uh, Look at your study sheet. I hope you've got one. Uh, Judgment reveals God's character. And you've got a couple great stories in the Old Testament that bring this up. Uh, Genesis uh, 18 is a great story do you remember uh, the second person the trinity shows up walking like a man in the sands of 
of Abraham and Sarah's world. And he brings a couple of his buddies, two angels with him. And they, they eat with Abraham and they say, hey, a year from now, you guys are going to have a baby. You name him Isaac. And then as they're walking away, God says, oh, and by the way, Abraham, we came down to go to those cities over there in the plain, Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to see if they're as wicked as we've heard. Of course, God knew how wicked they were. And I'm going to destroy them if they're wicked. And of course, what, what ensues is this discussion between Abraham and God, because Abraham knows that his nephew Lot is down in that city. And God has just said he's going to wipe out those cities. Abraham's reeling a little bit. And in this discussion, you know, the famous passage, he's sort of bartering with God. And he's assuming that there must be several, like dozens, right, of righteous people in those two cities. And he's sort of bartering with God. Lord, what if? And he says this in that exchange about the thought that God might or could judge the righteous in the same way, destructively in the same way that he would the wicked. And he says, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. See, Abraham knew something. God, you can't do that. You can't judge them all the same way because there's some righteous and there's some wicked. And Lord, because you're a God of justice, you cannot treat them the same way because that would not be just. That would not be righteous judgment. You can't do that. I know you won't. And of course, God doesn't. And he takes the righteous out, Lot and his family. There's another great example of this in Habakkuk 1. And if you read that very short, right near the end of the Old Testament, Habakkuk's living towards the end, Jeremiah's days, towards the end of the kingdom of Judah there in the south. And he's complaining to God about how unrighteous the people in Judah are. And God says, that's good. I'm going to do something about that. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring the Babylonians in to judge the Jews. And Habakkuk hears that, and then that's, that's not what I'm asking for, Lord, because the Babylonians, they're more wicked than we are. That wouldn't appear just. It's a great conversation. And in the midst of that, Habakkuk says this, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And when he says see evil, look at wrong, he's talking about uphold it, affirm it. God, you cannot act, either when you judge your people or when you judge the Babylonians later, as he says he will, he says you cannot act in a way that's less than just or righteous. He knows it. That's what his appeal is based on. God, you couldn't do that because of your very character. And then listen to this out of Revelation 16. This has always been a passage that, for me, really speaks to the perfection of God's judgments. And this is one of those passages when God is pouring out the bowls of wrath on the earth on the christ rejecting earth and he gets to the third angel in the third bowl and it says this the third angel poured out his bowl and this is god's judgment into the rivers and springs of water and they became blood just like god's judgment against egypt under moses and i heard the angel in charge of the waters say this just are you O holy one who is and who was For you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. He concludes, it is what they deserve. The angel who sees what God does in judgment says, wow, they shed blood, you gave them blood. The punishment fits the crime. It's perfect. It's even poetically perfect. God, what you do, wow. 
the, the prophets knew, the fathers knew, the angels know that when God judges, he does it just right. His character wouldn't allow him to do anything less. Now, if you say God judges, we know that today, if you're going to hold me to a standard by which you judge me, it would be nice if I knew what the standard was. And so begs the question, has God given us standards by which he will judge us? Are there standards that we should be aware of by which we know God will hold us accountable? That would be appropriate. Before we get to the ten words, you know, the first one that I'm thinking of, there's several, by the way, standards by which we know God will judge us righteously. The first one I'm thinking about is from Romans 1.18. Paul says there, the wrath of God. And friends, wrath is a strong word. In the Greek, it's orge. And we say in English, orgy. We always at attach this to sex, but that's not the way it's used here in the Greek. It's an overflowing, em emotional, visceral response from God against something that's not good. It's an overwhelming emotional response. And God, we've said this before, God is emotional about sin. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all not some, and not just other peoples, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women and boys and girls who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And guys, whether it works, we sit here as Christians this morning, you and I still suppress the truth. As those without Christ, without hope, initially we suppress the truth. But the picture is this. Paul says here, everybody knows there's a God. We talked about this when we talked about God himself. Everybody knows there's a God. And I don't like that thought because I want to do what I want to do. And so Paul says what we do is we know there's a God. We know he's divine. We know he created the heavens and the earth and he's above and greater than the heavens and the earth, different than us. And, but we want to do what we want to do. So Paul says we push down the truth and we turn to our darkness. Friends, every one of us does that. Is there a standard God will hold us accountable for? Yes, all of us deny him in one way or another. That's a standard, and Paul's told us. There it is. You've got a few verses that follow up there, John, and a couple in Romans as well. There's also the ten words or the ten commandments. If you talk to anybody about a standard by which God might hold us accountable, this is probably the one that comes to mind. The ten words are just the introduction to the law of Moses, though, to the covenant God made with Israel there at Sinai. Now, they're a great summary, right? Because they cover the big things. They talk about God and idolatry and things like murder and theft and adultery. They cover the big things. And so, guys, the 10th one will get all of us. If, you've, if you don't, the first and the 10th will get all of us. Uh, there's no one who's been born that's not an idolater. And that just means that we put anything or something in the place of God. And the last one says don't covet. And guys, I haven't met anybody who, who says they've never coveted, that they've wanted in an unholy way what God gave someone else and not them. We've got the ten words. That's a standard. That's helpful. God's going to hold me accountable for those things. Do this, don't do that. You take those same ten words, though, and you get to the Sermon on the Mount, and what do you find out? Kent's been leading us through this. You find out Jesus says, well, it's not enough that you don't murder your brother if you hate him in your heart. Guilty. It's not enough that you don't sleep with someone you're not married to. You lust in your heart. Guilty. So Jesus took the ten words and key elements of the commands and he ups the ante. 
in the Gospels. He doesn't reduce it. He says, no, and that doesn't even go far enough. Has God given us standards by which we know He'll hold us accountable? Absolutely. He sure has. There's a lovely passage in Micah 6, verse 8. You know, the minor prophets and God's prophets always speaking truth to God's people. And the prophet's saying, man, Lord, you know, what do I do about my sin? You know, do I sacrifice my firstborn? What, what do I do? And God says through Micah 6, 8, God's told you what's good. It's sort of this synthesis of everything God said, the standards. Do justice like God does. Do justice, love mercy like God does. Walk humbly with your God. That's a standard. Same thing with Jesus in the Gospels. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love God and love your neighbor. Are there standards which God will hold us accountable for? Absolutely. Do any of us uphold those standards perfectly all the time? None of us do. We've already found out that all of us sin. So, at some point, the perfection of God's own character requires that He judge our sin according to His perfect standards. And when you read in Galatians, we're not going there this morning, but if you say, why the law? Why all the standards? It's because they show us that we fail the mark. God's Word is the straight line against which we see we are twisted and broken. So God's Word shows us we miss the mark. So God must judge us according to His righteous standards. Now, you also see God's judgment required because, and this sounds counterintuitive, but God's judgment against humanity is in part based on man's glory. On man's glory. That God's judgment against us reflects God's glory in us. So you remember you go back to Genesis 1, and unique among all God's creation, God says, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him in our place rule over the creation, the world we've made. And then it says, it concludes, God created man in His image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Guys, humanity shares the glory of God because we share His image. And this comes up in Genesis 9. There's all kinds of discussion, philosophically and otherwise, about the death penalty, just uh, reverting for a moment. But it was God who instituted capital punishment. It wasn't man. You remember in Genesis 6, God looks at the world and He says, they're all guilty. So what's He do? God institutes capital punishment. God kills all humanity over the earth with that flood. But He saves Noah and his family. When they come out of the flood, listen to what God said in Genesis 9. This is related to murder. The term here used is lifeblood. But this is about murder. It says, for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So related to capital punishment, at least conceptually, God said that the murderer forfeits his own life because he's violated God's very glory in the image of the person he murdered. God says His image in that other person is so profound and so glorious that if one of us intentionally, and again, this is murder, it's not manslaughter, the, the law goes into all of this stuff, fills all this out. If one person intentionally murders another person, the glory of God in His image in that other person is so profound and significant that the murderer has given up right to his own life. Because of the status, the glory of the victim. 
But this also gets flipped on its head. The murderer also has the image and the glory of God. And the murderer must be justly punished because of the image and the glory of God in him. Listen to the way this is fleshed out. This is from Touchstone Magazine just a couple months ago. This is J. Daryl Charles. He says this, Counter to the received wisdom of his day, C.S. Lewis insists that it is precisely because we are fashioned in the image of God as moral agents that we hold fellow human beings accountable in proportionate and just ways, rightly or justly. To not do so is to fail to dignify the image of God in one another. What's more, even voices as likely, and he mentions a couple of 18th and 19th century philosophers, Kant and Hegel, these guys, he says, even agree with Lewis, contending that the execution of a convicted murderer affirms his humanity insofar as it acknowledges his rationality and moral self-responsibility. Guys, that's profound. Because we're created in the image of God, because we're rational and moral, God could not fail to judge us. We're bigger, we're better than the beasts. We're different from them. When God judges a human, He is acknowledging the glory of God and therefore the responsibility of us as those made in His image. He couldn't do otherwise. So God's judgment on humanity reflects the inherent glory we have because we share the image of God. Judgment also reflects God's own glory. We went over a few of these passages a couple of weeks ago when we talked about God, some of His characteristics and His attributes. I want to review just a couple of these again. God's glory is demonstrated when He judges. His perfection is put on display every time He acts, in one way or another. And in Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 through 18, we read this, The Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, no one higher, no one greater. He's the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Now this is important. Nothing distorts or perverts God's justice. When He judges, He does so absolutely. No one can bribe God. Did you know you guys, you can't bribe God. Did you know that? Lord, if you will do, I will. Lord, if you'll give me this, I'll think about that. Did anyone watch the Cubs win the World Series? This is a total, sorry, digression. So somebody sent me a text, and it had a little cubby, a smiling cubby face, and the caption was, do you remember that promise you made? Church services start at 11 or whatever. Lord, if you'll let the Cubs win, I'll go to church Sunday. Well, you can't bribe God, this says. Nothing and no one can, can distort the perfection of His judgment. He continues, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. This is important because it means this. If I'm the weakest in culture and I have no ability to require justice, God says, God still provides justice. For the weakest, for the most powerless, no, God's judgment will come through just perfectly for them too. Psalm 9, verse 7 and 8 say, The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for justice, for judgment. He judges the world with 
righteousness just the way he should. He judges the peoples with uprightness. Every time he does this, he's putting his own perfection on display. Revelation 21-27 talks about the new heaven and the new earth. And it's interesting. The Scripture says this, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God's glory is in such full and perfect display in the new heavens and new earth that nothing that's less than holy and perfect will be there. That's the perfection of His judgment. His glory, His holiness, His righteousness will be on display and nothing will be there that's not what it should be. God's glory is displayed in His judgment. Uh, There's a, for me, there's another terrifying parable Jesus told in Matthew 22. Um, You guys remember this? That there's a king... And, you know, we don't think in these terms today, but a king's a powerful figure. And a king had the power of life and death. Kings did as they pleased. And you served and you lived and you went about your business sort of at the pleasure of the king. So that's important. So the parable starts, a king was going to give a big banquet at the wedding feast for his son. And so he sent out the invitations. If you get married, we do the same thing today. Hey, it's going to be on this day. Here it is. Get ready. Looking forward to having you. And he sends out the invitations. And then the day arrives and he sends out the heralds and they say, hey, the day is here. The banquet is set. The oxen have been slaughtered. Come, come to my banqueting hall, says the king. Honor my son on his wedding day. But when they go out, the people say, I've got work to do. I've got to muck out the stalls. Got to work on a field over here. I've I've got more important things to do than honor the king and honor the king's son. It's like, what? And some of the heralds, it says they're beaten and they're murdered. Again, think of the king. The king is everything. And so it says, well, the king, he sends out his army. He, he kills the murderers. He burns their cities. He judges them. And then he tells the guys, hey, go out to the highways and byways and bring because my hall isn't full and I want to honor my son. You bring everybody in here. And so the hall's filled up eventually. But then it's interesting because this is the way you wind down on this story. So far, so good. But then it gets to this. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He was speechless. The king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We often misunderstand this. A couple points. You know, the host would provide the wedding garment for you. They would provide it. So we don't look at this poor guy and say, that poor guy. He was wearing what he had. No. No. He refused the wedding garments is what he did. You imagine if I came to your house and maybe you've cleaned up and it's Friday evening and you've set your table, maybe maybe semi-formally, and and you're dressed and showered and clean, maybe not formally, and I show up in my grubbies and maybe I've got a little little of the dirt from the road on me, maybe oil on my hands, maybe smelling of the the cows or the horses where I came in from. Now, if I came to your house, you might say, oh, it's Mike. It's okay. We'll let him in. Because uh, we're, we're semi-peers, right? We're peers. But would you, would you get into the presidential celebration in your grubbies? You wouldn't. And presidents, they sit a lot, lot lower than kings do. And part of the point is this. It's the king who's offended. It's not Joe Blow on the street. You've offended the greatest honor and glory that you could offend. And you didn't have to. 
Because the king provides the wedding gown. He provides the garments for you. So what you've done is, you have snubbed your nose at the king, you've told him you're good enough as you are to come in in his courts, in his palace, and sit at his son's banquet, good enough on your own. And of course, this is a story to point out a bigger point. And it's this. What greater outrage for those made in God's image, but now fallen and morally twisted, to assume we can stand acceptable before the Holy of Holies, the Lord God in His heavenly courts, in our fallen and sinful condition. That parable points to a much greater reality and truth. And that wedding guest, that is us. So, if sin requires God's perfect judgment, and you remember, back to standards, God had told Adam, if you sin, you will die. Adam didn't know all the permutations on that. But friends, again, remember that hell is called the second death. Because it's the eternal death, it's separation from God who is in himself life. If sin requires God's perfect judgment, if we are all moral creatures made in the image of God, therefore responsible, if there are standards and we don't meet them, we all sin, then guys, who deserves hell? Who deserves the second death? The eternal capital punishment? Then you do, and I do, and we all do. Friends, this is one of the most terrifying thoughts. If you just think about this for a while. I deserve hell. I deserve an eternal future with no hope ever. With no life. That's the perfect justice of God carried out against your sins and mine. There's nothing more despairing. There's nothing more discouraging than to contemplate an eternity without God outside of His presence. But that is what we, every one of us, according to God's holy and righteous standards, that's what we Deserve. We're the unclean guest at the king's wedding. We are lawbreakers. We are oath breakers. We have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. We have sinned not a little but a lot against the glory over all other glories. We deserve death. We deserve the death sentence. And that needs to sink in. If we don't know that, God's love and grace is a very small thing. If we know that our sin brings real consequences and that it's eternal separation from God, the grace of God in Christ takes on a whole different view. We see God and His love and His grace in an entirely different way. Whereas if I'm a nice guy and you're a nice guy and God takes nice guys and nice gals to heaven, such a nice deal. But that's not the gospel. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Thankfully, and I know that most of you know this, 2 Corinthians 5.21 sums up the only hope we have or anybody has. For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become in Him the righteousness of God. Jesus has drained perfectly the wrath of God, the overflowing emotional holy, righteous response of God against our sin, that's what Jesus took on Himself on the cross. That's what He took for you and for me. So that now God can say to any who simply embrace Him in the arms of faith, you have perfect right standing before a holy and perfect God. 
Friends, this is why too, when our conscience condemns us, we say, God doesn't condemn us. We remind ourselves of the truth. If my conscience condemns me, God is greater than my conscience. The blood of Christ has covered my sins. You have an unshakable outlook on life if we know we were really judged and now we're really saved. And we're saved in the eyes of the Holy and Righteous One. For time's sake, I'm not going to go through the list of uh, self-test questions. You guys can do that on your own. That's on your study sheet. Uh, let me let me let me read just a few stanzas from a song as we wind down there. Okay, it's from an old hymn. Um, it's called "Lo, He Comes with Clouds Descending." Every eye shall now behold Him, robed in dreadful majesty. Speaking of Jesus, those who set at naught and sold Him, pierced and nailed Him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Every island, sea, and mountain, heaven and earth shall flee away. All who hate Him must, confounded, hear the trump proclaim the day, this is for those without Christ, come to judgment, come to judgment, come to judgment, come to judgment, come away. For us, those who have embraced faith, Jesus in faith, the dear tokens of His passion still His dazzling body bears, cause of endless exultation to his ransomed worshipers with what rapture with what rapture with what rapture gaze we on those glorious scars father thanks that you took our measure and found us wanting in every way possible lord jesus thanks for taking the punishment due our sins every one of them in your body on the tree father thanks for saving sinners separated from you by thought and deed. God, thanks for turning rebels into beloved children. And Lord, would you help us out of that joy-filled hope to proclaim that saving gospel to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.